stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Uh, I'm reasonably sure it is, anyhow. Uh, I looked in the mirror this morning and appeared to be me. Um, so one of the signs of maturity is, uh, you know what, I first should, I, I remember there was something I wanted to tell you. Um, I have a new page on my website. For people who, are, who have gone to the website to um, make any entries on the blog that's on the website occasionally, not as regularly as it should be, faderfiles.com, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com. That's also the way you can contact me if you hear anything on the show, and I always appreciate the contact. That's what this is all about is communication. If you hear anything uh, on the show that you want to contact me about, um, for better or for worse, 
or tell me your opinion or you have a story to share, you can also do it by going to faderfiles.com and uh, you can get on my mailing list there. But I've added um, something new, a new page to the website, which is a poetry page. Now, I know poetry is um, one of the least favorite things of most people I've ever met. <laughs> nobody nobody, uh, nobody ever really got rich writing poetry. Um, not that I know of, anyhow. Maybe Robert Frost made some money, but uh, that's about it. Um, anyhow, there's a poetry page on there. These are poems that I've written over a period of about 10 years. A lot of them from about... There was this burst of poetical feeling I had about 10 years ago, um, shortly after one of my um, admissions and, um, <clears throat> and graduations from a psychiatric hospital. So I got some wave of poetical inspiration. Some of them are pretty good. So I've set up a poetry page, and I invite you all to check it out. If you're interested, Actually, I shouldn't even say if you're interested in poetry, because like I said, a lot of people just aren't. I don't read that much poetry, and I always had trouble understanding it. But once in a while, I'd come across something that was very powerful. Um, anyhow, some of these poems are funny. Some of them are not so funny. Some of them are very good poems. I have to say, though, I did it myself. So if you go to the poetry page on, um, on faderfiles.com, you'll see the list of, on the top, there's a menu. A menu, yeah, <clears throat> and uh, one of the uh, main, um, one of the entrees, one of the main courses is the poetry page. And there's a few poems on there now, and I'll be adding as time goes along, so check that out. Also, as um, usual, I want to thank all the people who do regularly get in touch with me about this, that, and the other thing, uh, sometimes based on shows I do and sometimes not. What was I saying before? I was saying that it's a sign of maturity, or it's one of the signs of maturity, which I either read about or recognize, since I uh, actually do not um, practice, or uh, the signs of maturity do not inhabit me very much at all. One of the signs of maturity is supposed to be that you adjust to new things, uh, that you're flexible, because life is always changing, correct? Life is change. And that's something that I have never, never gotten used to. And it's typical that when somebody's older, they, um, you know, they have, they're, they're more inflexible. Their bones are more uh, rigid. Everything about them is more rigid. Um, their habits, their, uh, their bodies, their minds, their ways of thinking, more narrow and more rigid. Now, I know some people who are approximately my age or older who are far more flexible than I am. In fact, most people I know are more flexible than I am. Uh, I, on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, I'm about a minus 2 when it comes to flexibility. So for the first time in many, many, many years that I've been doing this show, I'm doing it on a Friday now. Um, <clears throat> now, not necessarily that it makes that much difference in terms of um, live broadcasting because this is not uh, a live broadcast. Well, it is and it isn't. I am recording this live. I'm not, re I'm not recording this um, from some remote location. I'm recording this live in the studio. But yet it is a recording. So it's not as if I'm live on Fridays. But the show is broadcast on Fridays, and I am down in the studio on Fridays which I have never been before. So this is also, this is a big change after several years. And I'm in a different studio. Uh, 
Uh, I was in one studio in our new, uh, in PRN's new studios and offices. I was in one studio for um, quite some time. I don't know, is it a year and a half, two years now that we've been down here? Um, on East 31st Street is where we're located now. Used to be the Upper West Side. So now I'm in a new studio. Now it's going to take me a while to get used to the studio. It's going to take me a while to get used to the fact that I'm on Fridays. So you all should know that uh, the show is going to be streaming on Fridays at 4 p.m., uh, which it should be doing this Friday uh, as I speak. This is Friday, September 16th. Um, a very inauspicious, well, I'll tell you this in a minute, very inauspicious day for, um, for, for me. And uh, the beginning of a couple of weeks of inauspicious uh, anniversaries. But uh, so it's airing on Fridays and I'm recording on Fridays. All new, new studio. The lighting in this studio is different than I'm used to um, for quite a while. It's going to take a while for me to get used to. I would say five to ten years, something like that. Um, <clears throat> it's been a while since I've done uh, a new recording. The last new recording I did was back before uh, Labor Day. So it's... Uh, I can't add up the time, but it's a couple of weeks now, and I feel it doesn't take much for me to get rusty. You know, I haven't. I know if I worked every week or if I worked every day, then I would feel more, um, more like I was in a swing of things. And as usual, of course, because the world does change and things keep happening uh, all the time, there is more and more stuff that has gone on. Um, I would have liked to have been on the air here uh, on a Monday. Because the Monday just passed, followed 9-11, and September 11th, the anniversary, the 15th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center, uh, which occurred on September, the morning of September 11th, 2001. And um, uh, if I was on my regular schedule, I would have been on, on the um, 12th, and I certainly would have talked about it. But now... It seems as if it has gone by and it is old news. Uh, how do I know this? Well, I check Facebook once in a while and people, um, things happen so quickly, right? There's so much going on. So the memories I had of that day were, um, were manifold and many memories of that day, some of them personal. Nobody I knew uh, of my friends and family got killed in the World Trade Center and nobody I knew got killed uh, sure, no, nobody was injured or killed uh, right around the base of it. I, I, don't have, I don't have any friends or family immediately, anyhow, who were um, cops or firemen or emergency responders. And I certainly didn't know anybody, thank God, uh, who was uh, murdered in the, uh, because it was a mass murder that was murdered in the, uh, in the towers when the planes hit it. Uh, <clears throat> as far as conspiracy theories, I don't know what to say about it. Really, I almost literally don't have nothing to say. <laughs> I've been on the radio, you know, for 35 years, and I've heard lots of conspiracy theories, and some of them are, are perfectly true. And the main one, of course, with the... Um, I did look at the videos, though. I looked at the videos of the World Trade Center, um, and I looked at videos of the towers burning... And I looked at the videos of the towers collapsing. And you know that the main conspiracy theory, I shouldn't, you know, conspiracy theory has such a uh, derogatory um, you know, connotation to it. Uh, 
that can you say conspiracy theory, you conjure up the image of um, paranoid schizophrenics, people who are completely nuts, you know, who make things up, who can't tell the difference between reality and uh, and fact. And um, but I don't I don't I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I would say that anywhere from half to two thirds of what are considered conspiracy theories, and that is to say that they've been made up or that they're fairy tales or not true, are probably true. A lot of them are patently, ridiculously untrue. Uh, there is one that I heard that, well, anyhow, I, what I did was I watched these videos. Why did I watch the videos? Um, I hadn't watched those videos of the planes hitting the towers and the, um, the towers uh, on fire and the towers collapsing. I hadn't watched those since uh, for 15 years. I watched them uh, on the morning of the attacks and the, uh, the, the fire and the crashing down of the towers. I watched them on that very morning. And I watched uh, morbidly fascinated, like the rest of the world, for the next few days. Yet I have not <clears throat> watched the, uh, the videos for a long time. And the reason I watched them this time was because uh, uh, there's um, somebody who I'm mentoring. What is the word for it? Uh, foreign students or people who come to this country who are refugees or immigrants, especially, I guess, immigrants or people who are temporary visitors to this country, sometimes register with organizations, sometimes churches or nonprofit organizations, and sometimes profit-making organizations. They register with them to be taught English or to learn how to speak conversational English uh, since they maybe only studied uh, formal English in another country. And there is a um, student, I call him a student, I guess I'm a teacher temporarily when I do it, I do it every Friday afternoon, uh, who, I, um, <clears throat> who I converse with. <laughs> who we, we speak about different subjects. Um, I usually come up with the subjects and we talk about different subjects. Usually it's history or geography or the history of New York City, which he's fascinated in. He is from <clears throat> He's a young man who is from China, and he studied, like a lot of people in China, English is uh, almost a required uh, language for people in China to study in their middle school days and in high school, and probably in some cases in college, um, because it is an international language. It is, I suppose, still the international language of science and business and uh, politics. English is that language. <clears throat> I have a little water here. So um, since it was going to be 9-11 and a couple of days before the last time I saw him for our conversational um, learning period. Hold on. Ah, yes, indeed. I wish it was more than just water in there, but <clears throat> I can't digest alcohol that well. <clears throat> so meanwhile, um, and you take my word for it. If I'm drinking uh, and I tell you it's water, right, how could you know the difference? So I, uh, so I, I showed him the videos because I was telling him about the conspiracy theories. And one of the, main, one, of the, uh, one of the conspiracy theories, which of course is absurd and ridiculous and uh, is the, uh, the work of people who... Uh, just uh, for some reason, which I don't understand because my mind will work. I am paranoid often, and I do work 
with the uh, understanding sometimes that the world is filled with uh, people who are um, united in some way to keep most of us down. I believe in some conspiracy theories because I believe there are conspiracies. The rich against the poor, right? I just read in a, um, uh, today in the New York Times, there's uh, polls that, um, that, that something like 36% of the American public don't see Hillary Clinton, do not see Hillary Clinton as an agent of change. <laughs> an agent of change, Hillary Clinton, right? Poor Hillary Clinton, I know. It was horrible to see her... Um, I mean, whatever you think of her or whatever, you, I mean, it was awful to see this poor old lady, you know, um, who is, I think she's 70 years old, right? Same as Donald Trump. It was awful to see her just about collapse and stagger and had to be uh, helped to her. Uh, she would have fallen on the sidewalk and maybe really hurt herself if it wasn't for the Secret Service agents who grabbed her on both sides, grabbed her arms and her elbows and helped her into the van. But... Uh, uh, the latest polls, one of the things they show is that Hillary Clinton is um, is not, uh, a lot of people think that Hillary Clinton is not an agent of change. Well, uh, speaking of uh, conspiracy theories and who's in charge of really running the country, which is Hillary Clinton and all her rich pals, uh, of course, I would be amazed to meet somebody, I would like to meet somebody who actually thought she was an agent of change. Who is there in their right mind? who thinks that Hillary Clinton can be an agent of change. <laughs> I, I really don't know. The only thing I could imagine that Hillary Clinton uh, would be an agent of change is I suppose over the long run there's been so many conservative appointments to the Supreme Court. She would be an agent of change, hopefully, if she was elected. Uh, and uh, the chances are her being elected get to be tighter and tighter all the time, according to these polls. But she'd be an agent of change in appointing more liberal people to the Supreme Court. She would also, I think, be an agent of change in uh, championing the rights of women in a much more aggressive and forceful way than has ever been done before. This, I believe, might be true. This, I believe, might be true. But when it comes to taxes and the quality of our daily lives and the government spying on us and all of our, most of our taxes being spent on, um, on the NSA, on the CIA, on wars, on the Pentagon, on weapons, there will be no change if she's elected president. Um, this, uh, <clears throat> there will be no change. So conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theory about the tower that I consider to be the most insane and ridiculous because I saw this with my own eyes and I don't believe the video was mocked up. Uh, almost nobody saw the first plane hit. I shouldn't say that, almost nobody. But uh, maybe there were a few hundred people or maybe a thousand people if you spread the area. I mean, after all, the World Trade Center and at the height of the World Trade Center is visible from buildings that are 10, 20 stories high on higher parts of Manhattan, visible from Brooklyn, visible from Jersey, certainly, from New Jersey, visible from all kinds of places. And some people may have been looking out their window at the time, and some people probably just sort of staring at the towers, which I often did from an office building that I worked in. Uh, in 1993, there was an attempted... Um, uh, there was an explosion that was set off. Uh, a bomb was planted in a van by an Islamic extremist, uh, self-identified Islamic extremist. I'm not uh, being um, politically incorrect or 
veering over to bigotry of the right wing. He uh, <clears throat> was very much interested in, um, I think the man was blind, but I don't remember his name anymore. I certainly don't remember his name. Um, but uh, the, some bombs were planted in a van and driven to the basement parking lot of one of the trade centers, and uh, a bomb went off, and they had to evacuate the trade centers, and some smoke was coming out, and you could see it. And I could see this. I saw this in 1993 from uh, an office building that I was in. We were on the 8th floor, the 10th floor, down on uh, Wall Street, which is only a couple of blocks away from where the towers were, and I saw this. So <clears throat> several hundred people probably did see, or maybe a couple of thousand people, saw the first plane hit the first tower. Um, but... Um, Probably several hundred thousand people or maybe a couple of million people, for all I know, I don't know what the figures are, saw the second plane hit. And I saw it hit. Uh, I was watching the first tower um, as it was uh, burning. Uh, and the plane hit at a very high level. It was like the 80-something of the floor, 86th floor, 83rd floor, I forget which now. But I saw the second plane hit. There are apparently people who don't believe that uh, any planes hit the towers. Uh, they think that video, I don't know what they think. I don't know if they are thinking at all, but they think, apparently, they assume that there was a, a mock-up by the people who actually destroyed the towers. Now, that second part of the conspiracy theory is that when you, you know, when a plane, when those huge, you know, monstrous jet planes hit those towers, of course, they're going to, cause tremendous damage. There will be huge fires from the jet fuel and from whatever else they hit inside the towers. There will be, uh, you know, uh, tremendous uh, smoky fires from all the plastic and the, um, the paper and everything. And, and I'm sorry to say, the, uh, the bodies that were burning um, at the top of those towers. However, <clears throat> When they fell down is when people started to really um, come up with uh, theories that there were bombs planted. And uh, most of you remember this, I think, right? That there were bombs planted in the towers because the towers fell in an extremely uniform and it seems to me from a, purely from a layman's point of view, very unusual way. I mean, these are huge, tall structures. And it seems to me that if they were burning and if the, uh, the metal structure, you know, the, the, uh, the core steel girders that were holding the building up on, on all four sides and maybe in the middle, I don't know how the construction worked, if they were melting and the building was hit at a certain point for, and there was uh, 14 or 15 stories, you know, above where the point where they, uh, the buildings were hit by the jets, that the buildings, one way or another, these tall, huge, tall buildings, would fall sideways, that, that they would fall sideways, that they just collapsed the same way that when they're demolishing buildings and they set bombs off in buildings, charges off in buildings, at various um, uh, critical points to, uh, to collapse the girders, the, the essential core and structure of a building, if you've ever seen um, videos of the demolition of buildings, you see that what happens is they set up these charges, and I don't mean a wreck, the old wrecking ball, right? But when they, when they blow up a large building and they want it to collapse, they set the charges so the building collapses inward. 
and it collapses straight down and inward. Presumably, uh, this is so that there's less cleaning up to do, and of course, that there's less danger to anybody else around the area where the building is falling down and less destruction of other buildings or land in the area. The World Trade Center buildings came down exactly the way that other buildings do when they are um, set up for demolition. And, of course, a lot of people immediately said, of course, what happened afterwards was that we had the Patriot Act, we had the invasion of Afghanistan, we had the invasion of Iraq, and uh, we have uh, modern history for the last 15 years, all of which is um, leading to uh, almost everything. I mean, those World Trade Center attacks and what followed afterwards with the United States invading Afghanistan and certainly with the United States totally unnecessarily and uh, based on a lie, on lies, invaded Iraq, that has changed Middle Eastern history and it has changed uh, the history of the Middle East. It has changed uh, everything. It's changed absolutely everything. It's changed the way our government functions. It's changed the nature of privacy and secrecy in the government. It's changed uh, the Constitution, uh, affected the Constitution in a way that makes it less uh, of a protection for all of us. Everything, everything, everything has changed since, uh, since 9-11. And to me, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's perfectly believable because of what I saw with my own eyes when it happened as I was watching the television that these towers came down in a way which was extremely unusual and unlikely. Anyhow, so I was watching these, um, these videos again. Why? Because I was talking to my student, my English conversation student, about the attacks on 9-11 and about the conspiracy theories. And he is a scientist of uh, one particular kind. He's not a scientist, uh, you know, um, uh, a structural engineer, and he's not an engineer. But he is a scientist of a, of, uh, of a different kind. And so he's given to understanding these kind of argu scientific arguments and using his mind in a logical, mathematical, orderly way, which I am not. <laughs> that has to be completely obvious, right? So I, I showed him, I turned the videos on. He had never seen these videos before. And he was a kid when these things happened. He's uh, in his mid-20s now. So he was a child in, um, you know, an elementary school child or maybe in middle school when, in China when this happened. And, you know, that, and because of the way the Chinese block out absolutely everything or try to access to the outer world, uh, these things were not seen by the Chinese. <coughs> So I showed him these videos, and I was, I didn't realize what an effect they would have on me. I did not realize what an effect they would have on me. I mean, it was overwhelming. I was filled with uh, that same feeling or memories that seemed like the same uh, clutching, horrible feeling of shock and tragedy, um, you know, uh, speechless shock and tragedy, watching them burn and watching them collapse and hearing people because the various videos were accompanied by sounds of people screaming and crying and uh, helpless to see these giant things come down. And I was overwhelmed by it again. Also, I remembered that my son was in school only three blocks away from this and saw one of the planes hit. He saw the second plane hit. He saw the buildings on fire. He saw um, the towers come down 
and he was in it was a high school which is located only three blocks away from the World Trade Center uh, where the Twin Towers were and uh, <clears throat> we lost track of him we didn't know where he was we were uh, scared to death that something had happened to him because all communications were down this is before the era of self everybody had a cell phone or were able to text or call on cell phones we didn't know where he was. Phones were, were out of order. You couldn't reach anybody, and there was no way to reach him. And we were terrified. Uh, we didn't know what happened to him because we knew how close he was to these buildings. And he showed up back at the apartment. Um, about two or three hours later, he walked all the way up from downtown, all the way up to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was about five or six miles. Um, and when he got home... He was covered in um, a fine kind of dust, and I would have to say it was probably ash. And these are the things, and I remember the next few days and all the uh, going to the firehouses, and uh, one thing he did was he had a savings account, you know, of a couple of hundred dollars, which he had, he was 16 at the time, a sophomore in, in high school, and he had amassed amassed, if that's a too large a word, he had built up uh, savings from... Um, various chores and things that he had been paid to do and also from presents that he had been given, birthday, Christmas presents. He had built up a couple of hundred dollars. Um, he went with me because I was a signatory to his savings account and took out all the money except for $5 to keep it alive and brought the money over to one of the local firehouses where there were lines of people uh, lined up to donate money because 10% of the firemen in New York City were killed that day. 10% out of 3,000 firemen, 300 died that day, uh, or was it that day and the, the, you know, the, uh, the days um, afterwards when they were working and the months afterwards when they were working with all that stuff. But at the time of the crashing down of the towers and the burning of the towers, um, hundreds and hundreds of firemen were killed. And people lined up at firehouses to, uh, to give the families money. Uh, <clears throat> it was an extraordinary time in New York. Uh, never, of course, have I ever lived through any time just very much like that in New York City. And watching these videos brought it all back to me. And there were two things that, uh, that came back to me, two things that came back to me. On that day, it was an absolutely beautiful day. Before the first plane hit the first tower, it was an absolutely perfect day. And there are some days like that, sometimes in May in New York City, and sometimes in September. It wasn't too cold. It was the sun was out, bright shining sun. The um, the sky was perfectly blue. It wasn't uh, you didn't get you didn't smell car exhaust fumes, and somehow it was the freshest air that I had ever smelled in New York. And um, uh, it, it was just a gorgeous day, perfect day, and. People had just gone back to school. You know, it was uh, three or four days after people had gone back to school. People, uh, whether they liked it or not, and of course a lot of people don't. Summertime was basically over, and the, the year had turned or was turning. But it was a day that uh, was suspended. It was one of those suspended days where it wasn't quite summer and it wasn't quite fall. And it was just a quiet and a quiet day, and the sun was shining, as I say. It was a day of uh, a feeling of utter benevolence. 
you had the feeling before any of this stuff happened that day, you had the feeling that nothing bad could happen, a benevolent feeling, a feeling of uh, whether you're religious or not, that some great power or some eternal essence had infused absolutely everything, the air, the water, the trees, the leaves, um, the sunlight, other people, everything, with this uh, milk of human kindness and benevolence, that nothing could go wrong. And then, boom, bam, out of the blue, literally out of the blue, these planes fly into these buildings, and the world is never the same after that. The world is never the same after that. And, of course, people in New York City uh, have, uh, have never really uh, recovered from that. Uh, if you were a little kid then, I don't know exactly what that means to you, but if you, the kind of person who, uh, if you were like older, like 8, 9, 10, 12, 20, certainly an adult, and saw those planes hit and felt that shock. And um, in my neighborhood, there were people who had uh, spouses, who had wives and husbands that died in that tower that worked up there. And um, you never feel this. You never felt the same afterwards in New York. If you came to New York afterwards, um, or if you lived in, um, let's say, an outer borough, I don't know. Maybe it made a difference. Maybe it didn't. But you, if you lived in Manhattan when that happened, you have never felt the same since. You don't feel that. Um, you have a feeling of slight feeling of. Uh, and for me, you know, I have this feeling all the time. But everybody's got. Even the most optimistic people have this feeling of. Um, pessimism and distrust, no matter how deeply it's buried in their unconscious, there's a feeling of shakiness, a feeling of that any time anything could happen, a bad thing could happen, no matter how good anything is going, something bad could happen. Now, like I say, I am clearly prone all my life and still to this moment uh, prone to believing that something bad is going to happen. And because I do believe that all the time, because I'm cynical and paranoid and because I believe the worst is always going to happen or the worst is happening, then very often the worst does happen because I send out these vibrations which come back to me and affect everybody and everything around me. And bad things tend to happen to people who think bad things. <laughs> uh, what is that very old um, uh, French saying? Oni soit qui mal hi pense. Evil to those who evil think. Yes, it's like karmic. If you're always thinking bad thoughts, if you're thinking the worst is going to happen, very often the worst does happen to you. But even people now, okay, so put me and people like that aside, right? Even people who are optimistic people who don't dwell on things like that, who don't believe in the worst things happening, who are somewhat positive, were affected by that. So that's one I think almost like a lesson that people learn, whether they wanted to or not, that sometimes out of the blue, out of a clear blue sky, out of a, a, out of a period of utter benevolence, something suddenly could happen that could wreck everything. It's a feeling that you don't keep in your head all the time um, if you're normal because it would uh, make your life unlivable. So you suppress this, so you repress all this stuff. The other thing that happened was that the city, Manhattan, when I say the city, I mean Manhattan specifically, is always so crazy. Everything, everybody is always running, and it's crazier now than it ever was. But the city is always this crazy, overwhelming place with people running around and traffic and madness 
and money and getting and spending and building and destroying and building more buildings and and tearing up the streets and everything is always happening every second. The city never stops, but it stopped that day. It stopped that morning and it stayed pause for several days thereafterwards uh, and even for a little bit longer. There was, for the only time I've ever seen it in Manhattan, and I've lived here far too long, uh, decades now, uh, after having moved from Brooklyn. It's the only time I ever saw the city just stop. It's like some giant hand hit the pause button. Said, let's just all stop. And the buses and the trains literally stopped running. Um, there were almost no cars on the street. Uh, there was almost no traffic, no Trucks were coming in. There's always thousands of trucks everywhere in Manhattan delivering and making tremendous amounts of noise and taking up space and roaring around corners and double and triple parking. Cabs stopped running. Um, Trucks didn't come into Manhattan. Uh, The bridges and the tunnels were shut down. And there was a pause in the air. There was a stillness that came over Manhattan, which was extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And people stopped, you know, trying to, uh, to, there was no business that took place. Since nobody could get anywhere and people were afraid to go up in any towers, people stopped going to work for a couple of days or maybe even like a week or even two weeks. People didn't go into work. And so all this uh, manipulating and buying and selling and trading and commodities and stocks and bonds and all this crap that goes on here all the time in Manhattan uh, that makes it a kind of evil beehive as far as I'm concerned, all of this stuff just stopped and the noise died down to practically nothing. The noise died down. The noise is the main thing. And then the mental, emotional, and material noise dropped down, too. And all people could do was to try to recover from the shock of what had happened. And this recovery was slow, and it was, it was arduous and painful, and it's still going on for some people. But in this interim, that was the second lesson. So one thing was, out of the blue, anything can happen. So you have to live your life, I guess, and it depends on whether you're cynical or pessimistic here, this is essential, or whether you're positive and, uh, you know, try to look on, uh, on the enthusiastic side about life. Since anything bad could happen out of the blue any time, you have to be uh, prepared for that. Um, and so one thing it would do to people like me, who I started off saying how inflexible and how scared I am of any change, one thing, the realization that anything can happen bad out of the blue, and believe me, I've had things like that happen way before the World Trade Center, is that um, that extreme tragic things have happened in my life suddenly, absolutely suddenly, where they would never expect it to happen. And I learned that lesson a long time before, and the World Trade Center just reaffirmed that for me. So what it will do to some people like me, who have experienced this and have a certain nature, is that they will never take any risks. They will never allow themselves, like I never allow myself generally, to enjoy anything. Never allow myself to be off guard. I'm always completely hypervigilant. And when you're hypervigilant, you cannot enjoy yourself. Laying back, taking it easy, 
enjoying things, uh, just um, uh, letting your guard down so that you can enjoy the uh, pleasures of life, uh, slowing down, and just, and just the word joy itself, not available to some people who really believe, and it's in their bones from their life experience, that something awful could happen at any second. On the other hand, if, and I'm speaking for people who are different than I am, <laughs> thank God there are more people who are different than I am, you know, uh, that are not as cynical and um, as uh, paranoid as, as I am. <clears throat> uh, other people will say, well, since something awful could happen in any minute, then you should, that's the reason why you should enjoy yourself. That is the very reason why you should just enjoy yourself. If that's, if that's the way life is, then have as good a time as you can because uh, there's a song, right? That famous song, Enjoy Yourself is Later Than You Think. Is that from the 50s? I don't remember. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. I don't know. It's, uh, it almost sounded a little bit like a polka. It was to a polka tune. Who sang that song? I don't know. If you know, I mean, I could find out. I could go home and look on the uh, ubiquitous uh, Wikipedia and find out. Maybe I will later. But if you, if you know who that is, you can uh, write to me and tell me. So that was my review of the World Trade Center. And there was uh, one other thing that happened uh, since I've seen you <clears throat> that uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit. But first, we're going to get a little music. If uh, we're at, Can we get a touch of music? Yeah, and then we'll... Uh, come back and I'll tell you one other thing that happened since I have been away from the air for a while. Okay, <clears throat> back here. This is the turning point with Mike Fader. Um, one other thing that happened um, in the last couple of weeks is that Gene Wilder, uh, the movie star Gene Wilder died. And Gene Wilder was the only movie star that I have ever known personally in my life. Actually had a short uh, but intense personal relationship with Gene Wilder. Um, a professional, A professional relationship. What happened was that when my first book came out, New York Sun, that's New York Sun, published by, I don't even remember who published it, or Crown Publishers. Um, and if you've never read the book, be my guest and uh, go on, um, go on uh, Amazon and buy it, New York Sun. Uh, better, actually, buy, uh, buy my third book called A Long Swim Upstream because my most recent book, uh, which was completed about three years ago, a Long Swim Upstream is a rewriting, basically, of New York Sun, is, a, is a, a massive rewriting of New York Sun. And these are autobiographical stories, uh, some of which, in fact, most of which are extremely good. They're very funny. They're very tragic. They're very hopeful. They're very um, 
Very touching stories, if I do say so myself. When my first book was published in, uh, in 1988, uh, <clears throat> I got a call from my uh, agent. I had an agent, of course. <laughs> I once had an agent. I did, yes, representing me in the world because I couldn't represent my... Well, you needed somebody professional, right? When the book came out, there was, um, uh, there was a review of my work. Not the book itself, unfortunately, but there was a review of my work in the New York Times. And um, I uh, got... Uh, I was performing. I was performing autobiographical stories in a review of the fact that I, was, that I had just recently published a book or that a book was coming out. And uh, all of this information came out. So my book is published in 1988. And um, because of the uh, newspaper article in the New York Times, uh, which occurred a couple of, like about a year and a half before that, and because when the book came out, uh, it was reviewed uh, in various newspapers all over the country. Gene Wilder uh, and his wife at the time, Gilda Radner, heard of this book and took an interest in it, especially Gene Wilder. And he had his agent contact uh, my agent, and we met. We met each other. And what he wanted to do was write a screen treatment. And Gene Wilder uh, wanted to write a screen treatment, ultimately a screenplay with me, because he liked the sentiments that were expressed in the book. He liked, he didn't like it, but I mean, he felt like he was a kindred spirit to me because of the life he had led. Uh, in the book, I talk in one story, I talk about how my mother, my poor, sad, crazy mother, and in two weeks, uh, actually, is going to be the anniversary of her suicide. Uh, I talk about how <clears throat> when she was so mentally ill and so depressed and so miserable when I was a kid, that it was my job, it was my main job, in fact, my only job in life, to cheer her up all the time. Uh, when I was starting when I was about four years old till I was about nine years old when I went on strike permanently and decided not to cheer anybody up anymore, although that's not really true, is it? But uh, certainly not her because it wasn't working. I spent my entire life trying to cheer this woman up, tell her stories, um, and I would come home from school or outside playing and I'd tell her these Incredible stories about, I mean, what kind of life did I lead? You know, I was playing ball or, uh, or I saw something interesting when I was riding my bike. <laughs> but I would elaborate and I would enhance and I would throw my imagination into it. And everything I read and everything I thought and everything I imagined combined with everything I saw in our little neighborhood, in our, our quiet, benevolent little neighborhood, I would relate to her uh, to try her to get her back connected to me and connected to the world itself. And apparently it turned out that Gene Wilder had a mother, uh, not mentally ill like mine, but his mother when he was young, uh, I don't know how sick she was in her head, but she had a very serious heart attack when he was a kid, when he was a little kid. And when they brought her home from the hospital, he was, giving very strict, he was given very strict instructions. Do not make trouble and try to be as funny and as humorous and as cheerful as possible all the time. So it helps your mother out. So, you know, God forbid if you were, and this is the implied message, and certainly I got this explicit. It wasn't uh, implicit. It was explicit. I was told that if I behave badly, my mother uh, might go crazy or kill herself. Yes, that's what they told me. The family and her, they, she told me that maybe about every day. And he was told, I don't know if his mother told him directly, Gene Wilder, but his family told him, I think his father, he said, told him, 
that uh, <clears throat> when he was a kid, when his mother came home from the hospital and when she had this serious heart condition for years, that he always, 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 he could never be angry. He could never get angry at her. He could never be sad in front of her. He always had to cheer her up. And you get the idea from that uh, later on why he became, you know, what he became, the kind of um, uh, sad clown in a way that he became later on. Um, he was a serious actor, Gene Wilder, before he started making all these extremely funny. Some movies are, the slapstick is too much, and they're almost like teenage stupid, some of his movies, like The Producers. I never liked that movie a whole lot. But he's really funny in Young Frankenstein. And in some of the Richard Pryor movies, he's very funny too. But uh, my favorite, of course, is Young Frankenstein, or as he called himself, Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> Not Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Anyhow, uh, so eventually I got to meet him. He flew to New York, and we worked together on a screen treatment. And um, we worked at, uh, at uh, a suite that he had at the Carlisle. I mean, he's a movie star, right? Very rich guy. And he had, uh, whenever he came to New York City, he stayed at the Carlisle Hotel in Manhattan, which is a very, very fancy hotel. The Kennedys, uh, who were, uh, you know, in the 50s, uh, one of the richest families in the entire country. Joseph Kennedy Sr. was one of the richest men in the United States. He had the equivalent of what would now be something like eight or nine billion dollars. And the Kennedys were very rich. They had a permanent suite at the Carlisle Hotel. Um, so that's where Gene Wilder stayed when he came to New York. And he came to New York to meet me and to work together. Yeah, he came to New York also. He liked to come to New York. He missed, uh, <clears throat> he missed the city. He had spent a lot of time here when he was a younger man as an actor on Broadway. He was a serious stage actor at one point. He was uh, on Off-Broadway, and I think he was on Broadway too, um, in a supporting role in some very serious uh, dramas and plays. And um, this is before he, uh, he and Mel Brooks got together and uh, went on their uh, merry way. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so he comes to New York, and we meet at the Carlisle Hotel uh, a couple of times, and we're working together, and uh, it was extraordinary for me. I mean, here's this guy, you know, who I had seen um, uh, many times in my life uh, in, in these uh, different movies, and um, no matter who you are, I suppose you would be a little awed, um, and maybe, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but to meet an actual movie star. And there's this guy who I used to, you know, I'm used to seeing on the big screen. And I see the guy in person. And uh, there he is. And he looks very much like he did on screen. I mean, he took good care of himself. He was an athletic guy, kind of an athlete. Played, uh, he swam a lot, played a lot of tennis, stuff like that. Um, and a very handsome guy. You see him on screen, he's all made up weird. He's got silly mustaches and his hair, you know, that hair all over the place like Harpo Marks. Well, his hair sort of was all over the place, but it was really almost more coiffured. And it was his ginger-colored hair. It had to be at his age. It was probably a little dyed. And I think he told me that um, it was thinning, and he went to somebody, uh, some specialist in Manhattan. It was supposed to be kind of his secret, but he told me that he, um, <clears throat> that he was using minoxidil and that he was getting maybe hair transplants to maintain that sort of trademark mop of ginger hair he had. And he had these really bright, uh, beautiful, blue, bright uh, blue eyes. 
very a very handsome uh, guy, not uh, funny looking, <laughs> but just a handsome looking guy and tall, maybe six six one. So um, we worked uh, together, and then uh, after we you know we worked for a while in the morning, and then we went out for lunch. We walked down the street, and it was extraordinary. Uh, to, me, to meet a movie star and to be in the presence of a movie star, I had to get over my feeling of uh, awe, sort of, you know, my, uh, my sappy, you know, uh, moviegoer's awe of a movie star. But after a while, we uh, found out we had a lot in common and certainly had the same sense of humor, a little dry and uh, very funny and a little bizarre and a little mordant here and there. And we had the same sense of humor. So we set about writing a screenplay. We take breaks from working... We'd walk on the street, and it was extraordinary. I use that word a lot, right? Uh, it was uh, really uh, something to walk on the street with a movie star because people who were working on construction sites and other places or were working in little office buildings, they'd wave out the window, and on the street people would stop and stare and say, Hi, Gene. How you doing? Everybody recognized him. Everybody wanted his autograph. It was an amazing experience. Or then a couple of times we went shopping, and we stopped off in some fancy department store, and he spent something like... $10,000 on shirts and ties <laughs> and a couple of pair of leisure pants or whatever. So we worked and we worked together. But um, at the same time, uh, Gilda was still sick. And uh, uh, we, uh, you know, we worked with that hanging over our heads. And he told me how difficult it was to be with her when she was so sick all the time because she was very needy. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. And we were almost getting to the end of uh, completing this screen treatment, which later on would become a screenplay. And I had high hopes for my future here in terms of money and and a new form of artistic outlet. And um, he uh, he and I took a walk once. Actually, he took a walk in Central Park, and he was telling me this is at the height of her uh, reoccurred illness. She had been in remission, but it reoccurred. And he was telling me uh, he was the same blood type as her, and he had to give her transfusions. And he, we walked through Central Park, and people, we got to sit in a place near the Bethesda Fountain, and he told me these, it was driving him crazy, driving him crazy because she was so needy and he was giving her transfusions. He was up all night. He couldn't sleep. It's one of the reasons he actually liked to come to New York, and he was feeling very guilty even confessing this stuff to me. And we got to be very, very close. But um, at a certain point, at a certain point in 1989, when uh, a new movie of his came out and he was in New York talking to reviewers about it, it was Hear No Evil, See No Evil with Richard Pryor. It was the last movie he made, really. Well, not the last movie, but the last real project he made. Um, uh, she died. Gilda died. And this was in early, I think it was in February or March of 89. And I didn't hear from him anymore. We had been working by phone. We had been meeting when he flew to New York. And somehow I knew that that was the end of that. That was going to be the end of my relationship with him, and it turned out to be. Um, a couple of months later, he called me up, and I went up to visit him and his um, <coughs> and his estate. It's nothing less than an estate up in Stamford, Connecticut, a very rich place. And he told me that he wouldn't be doing any projects for a while because he was just too much in grief. And um, uh, all we had lunch, and ultimately I took the car back. Uh, a limousine drove me all the way back to the city, and that was my experience with Gene Wilder. I met him one more time uh, on this. Uh, we were walking the streets in New York, a friend of mine, and, and he was filming uh, one last film uh, on uh, in Soho in Manhattan. And I said hello to him, and he said hello to me, and that was it. But that was my movie star. It was the only movie star I ever met. 
and uh, 83 years old, and the guy forced to be cheerful, forced to be funny, forced to be positive all the time. And he always had that sad look on his face, which I understood. Okay, I'm back. I'm on Fridays now, and I will see you again next week when we will catch up on more of the insanity going on in the world, probably talk a lot more about politics. Thank you. Down in the hole